2: Hi friends, this week I would love to introduce you to a a new podcast. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's from our friends at the TED Audio Collective, and it's called Rethinking, hosted by psychologist Adam Grant. And this is an episode that's an interview with Olympic athlete and very decorated medalist Allison Felix. And I got a lot out of it, I think, because there's so much overlap with your everyday life, no matter what you do, whether or not you're an athlete or you work in uh, an office, whatever energy you bring to that, whatever your true motive is, like what's motivating you, very much affects your ability to achieve your goals. And she, she really talks about how she had different things that motivated her as she competed and how that changed her relationship to um the sport itself and i just think it's like a i i gleaned a lot about myself just through hearing her story so i think you'll enjoy it it's a really interesting episode also because she talks about the the biases she faced when she became a mother and i i think that a lot of people face when they become mothers and how you are perceived in the workplace so i got a lot out of this episode uh, Rethinking is a super helpful show because it's very much about the way we think, and it features interviews with leading thinkers about the mindsets they're reconsidering in order to live better. Adams had some really amazing guests, like Oscar-winning director Ava DuVernay, best-selling author Celeste Ng, and Olympic medalist Allison Felix, as I said, and... If you like this episode, please follow Rethinking wherever you get your podcasts to stay updated about future releases. So now onto the episode, enjoy.
1: Hey everyone, it's Adam Grant. Welcome back to Rethinking, my podcast on the science of what makes us tick. I'm an organizational psychologist and I'm taking you inside the minds of fascinating people to explore new thoughts and new ways of thinking. Today's guest is one of time's most influential people, sprinter Allison Felix. In Tokyo at age 35, she won her 10th and 11th Olympic medals, becoming the most decorated track and field athlete in American history, and the most decorated woman ever in the sport. She's now medaled in five straight Olympic games. It was an especially triumphant moment since it came in the aftermath of challenging Nike's lack of pregnancy protections for athletes. When Allison was expecting in 2018, they tried to cut her pay by 70%. When she asked them to guarantee her salary if her performance suffered due to childbirth, they refused. After she spoke out publicly and walked away, they finally changed their policy. Since then, Allison has founded her own footwear and lifestyle brand, Seish, with her brother Wes. I'm an advisor to Seish, and I was thrilled to see Allison win gold and bronze in her own shoes. I can't think of a better role model when it comes to achieving excellence, sustaining success, and bouncing forward after disappointment. Hey Allison, I want to start with your childhood. I think a lot of people assume that you must have been the Tiger Woods of running, that you were crawling down a track at three months old and training for the national championships Mm -hmm. by
0: kindergarten. But that's not what you were doing. Yeah. What were you up to instead? <laughs> I was a normal kid. It's funny. Yeah. You think an Olympian like you're off to some type of Olympic training camp or you're doing something, but I was literally growing up in my neighborhood. I played basketball. I did gymnastics. I chased after Wes. Um, I grew up in my neighborhood riding bikes and you know doing all the stuff that all of us did, and I was just active. And then. In high school, you know, I found track and field from just being at a new school and wanting, and, and my family telling me sports is a great way to like find friends. And so that's how I found it. But I think, I think it's so important to try like everything. I think because I, I literally found my passion, it came to me. And I think that allowed me to just, I don't know, have a lot of energy towards it. But yeah, growing up, I was, I was, you know, doing what kids do. <laughs>
1: there's some brand new evidence that world-class athletes started their sport later. And they also were more likely to have sort of cross-trained um, or sampled lots of different sports before they focused just on one. Obviously, that that's the trajectory you followed. Why why do you think that is? What's the advantage of, of actually specializing later?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting information to me because I've often wondered, you know, a lot of my counterparts, you know, did start very early on. And I've also met people who are similar to myself. Um I speaking to my own experience, I feel like I didn't burn out by doing so many other sports and by, you know, finding my sport later on and not specializing early on. I think that it benefited me. Um obviously I'm in a sport where it's not, you know, I don't want to say it's you don't need a skill, but it's, it's different than, you know, some of the other, you know, ball handling things and, and things of that nature. So I think it kind of depends, but I do, I have friends who started running when they were five years old. And by the time they got into college, it, it was just all too much. They had, you know, they had early on trained so intensely that there wasn't much left to give. For me, starting in high school, everything was new to me. You know, I'm just, I'm having so much fun. I'm taking it all in. I would say that I probably seriously started training when I was college age. Um, And so already then I feel like, you know, just even the toll on your body alone, you know, the years that you've given yourself, I I also feel like the longevity that I've had is a a lot attributed to starting later.
1: That's so interesting. Yeah, it may not be a coincidence that you've been an Olympian half your life.
0: Yeah, it's so crazy to, to think of it that way.
1: Uh, I mean it's it, it jumps out at me right away. I'm like, what was what was I doing as an eighteen year old? That's funny. <laughs> One of the things that some people are speculating now that these data are out there is, well, maybe this is actually just about natural ability. that if you know, if you're pretty talented but not you know a once in a generation talent, then you have to specialize early. Whereas if you're just an extraordinarily gifted athlete, then you have the luxury of just being able to try lots of sports. You're sort of good at everything. And then when you finally specialize, there's a higher ceiling. That leads me to wonder, were, were you good at everything?
0: I was just about to say, well, that's the thing. I definitely was not. So basketball was my first love and I, st- I still, I, I love it, but I was not good. So <laughs> um, I probably, if I was, I probably would have went that route but I, I was not, you know, I, I think I'm athletic for sure, but, um, <laughs> <You> I... <laughs> think?
1: wait, I'm sorry. How many Olympic medals do you have to win before you say, I know I'm athletic.
0: Okay. I, I guess I'm athletic, but I, when I, when you cross that over to other sports though, you know, I, I, have friends who play, you know, a lot of different professional sports and they'll quickly let you know, you're not, <laughs> you're not quite on this level. So it's, you know, it's a humbling experience when you, when you, when you do that. But, um, I definitely can say that I, not just pick up a pick up anything, and I'm I'm good at it.
1: <laughs> I uh, I think that gives us all hope. <laughs> so I have many questions. Um, I would love to just hear what your first Olympics was like.
0: It was so long ago, but my first Olympics was 2004 in Athens, and I was a teenager. I was 18 years old, and it was almost in a sense overwhelming because. Um, So it was all new to me. I mean, I had competed a a little bit on junior teams internationally, but it was like my first big international competition. And so it was great and amazing, but also in a sense, you know, it was a lot. I did everything that the Olympics has to offer. So I walked in opening ceremonies. I lived in the Olympic village. I traded pins. (laughs) I, I like did all of this stuff. And then yeah, competing was amazing. I think I think I was a bit, just a bit naive, you know, obviously every race you, you want to win. And so I remember racing my heart out and getting a silver medal. And I was so new to the sport that I didn't know that like all three medal winners take a victory lap. And I remember coming off and my mom was so disappointed with me because she was like, why didn't you take a victory lap? And I'm like, well, nobody told me (laughs) that I was supposed to do that. And so it was, it was so like innocent and amazing, but it really lit the fire for me of like, this is the Olympic spirit, this is what it's about. But if you want to reach the next level, it's gonna take a lot more.
1: Did you feel like you lost?
0: I did. It felt really heavy. And I think I didn't have a lot of, obviously, experience at the time. And I didn't know the weight of the Olympics. Like I, you know, I was competing in high school. Like that was what I had to compare it to. It felt just, I couldn't put in perspective that I was 18 years old. I was at the Olympics that, you know, I've only been running track for like four years, you know, it, it, all of the things, but my family quickly helped me like (laughs) put it all in perspective. (laughs)
1: Have you seen Jerry Ste- Seinfeld's routine on his problem with the silver medal?
0: I don't think I have, no.
1: Oh, I'm going to send it to you. It's, okay. it's one of the funniest comedy bits I've ever seen. Uh, one of the lines that stayed with me was when he said, like, silver medal, you came in first among all the losers. <laughs> what would you say to him?
0: <laughs> you know what? I In my early years, I would... Agree. <laughs> I would say absolutely right. Um, but then, you know, you, <laughs> perspective changes and you grow and you realize, you know, the amazing accomplishment and then also the propel, how it propels you forward to get better. And, and like I talked about, I feel like my silver medals have have really, you know, shaped me in a sense, you know, it's the character, the integrity, all of the things that you need to to be able to grow. but uh, But that's hilarious.
1: <laughs> what emotions did you feel, if you can rewind back to that time, the moment you found out you were second, not first?
0: The first emotion that I felt was disappointment. You know, honestly, it was it was that I was close to gold, but I didn't get it. And that stayed with me. But then it was excitement. You know, once I had some help of realizing that, no, this is a major accomplishment. This is, you know, this is really big. And then also, I think excited for the future of like, this is just the tip. Like, I'm just getting started. I, I know I have so much more to give.
1: Well, this is making me rethink something that psychologists have been studying for years, which I'm sure you've heard about ad nauseum, which is the classic finding that's now been replicated a bunch of times that bronze medalists are happier than silver.
0: It's true. (laughs) As I got older and, you know, I would watch, you know, different competitions and I would see people, you know, get a bronze medal or and they would be so thrilled. And I remember thinking like, wow, I wish I could have that feeling. It's been so long, you know, it's, it's your defeats. You feel them so heavy. And I think also when you're on the elite level for a while, you're expected to win, right? You're expected to be great. And I think oftentimes people take that for granted and they don't, you've been doing it for so long. I think people forget what all it takes. Those moments are heavier than the victories, you know, because it's just like, okay, well, good. It's almost like a relief. Like I was supposed to do this.
1: You just captured exactly what, what a new team of researchers has found in a replication. If I remember correctly, they looked at the Olympic medal photographs from, I think it was the 2000 through 2016 Olympic Games. So I guess you were you were in a bunch of these <laughs> pictures. And they, they coded the facial expressions that athletes had on the medal stand. Wow. And they showed, again, that silver medalists looked less happy than bronze medalists. Mm-hmm. And then they followed up and found that there were two explanations for it. One was um, silver medalists, on average, had higher expectations. Mm-hmm. And so they were more likely to be disappointed because they expected to win. Whereas usually if you got a bronze, you well in many events, right, you knew you didn't have a shot at gold. Yeah. Um, The other was, I think, the more interesting one, which is the counterfactual thinking of, you know, I could have I could have won gold versus I'm lucky I got a medal. Yeah. Did you go through that?
0: Uh, I think that's absolutely (laughs) right. Um, It's interesting. I feel like this year, I guess I experienced that. I I won my first, out of all the Olympics (laughs) that I've been to, I won my first bronze medal. And looking back, it's hard to rank them all, but I would say it's one of the most meaningful medals. And so I guess that's in line with that. And it is because, you know, not only did I make my fifth Olympic team, I don't think anybody expected me to, you know, especially in the track community. And not only to make that... (laughs) I (laughs) definitely
1: did. I had no doubts. You believed in me, Adam. (laughs) But I I saw the fire (laughs) that you had. (laughs) There is no way that Allison's not going to make it and come back with a medal.
0: I was going to be fighting the whole way. But, you know, and then to get to the Olympics and through the rounds, I think at most people thought I would make the final, you know, and so to get that bronze medal was just... It's definitely the most joyous I've been. And so, in earlier in my career, you could never tell me that I could celebrate a bronze medal. But I think a lot goes a lot goes into that. and and yeah, it's really interesting the the research there.
1: I think that's a sign of growth for sure definitely. that you can celebrate only being the third best in the world. <laughs> I want to ask you about your your experience of that in a, a slightly different way, which is when I teach this research, I, I like to tell my students about the difference between maximizers and satisficers. So maximizers being people who are always looking for the best when they compete or when they make a decision. And satisficers aiming for good enough and trying to meet their own standards as opposed to some objective benchmark. Mm-hmm. And my, my, my hunch is, and I want to I find out if this is actually accurate from the perspective of a true Olympic great. My hunch is that you can't really make the Olympics if you're a satisficer. Like you'd wake up tomorrow morning and you'd say like, my goal is to be the good enoughest runner in the world. <laughs> that's, that doesn't go anywhere, right? No. Like you no. have to be driven to pursue the best. Is, do you think that's right?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think it's not only you know obviously in sports, but I think anyone who is you know extremely ambitious like you're. You're going for the best, and not only the best. You want to do it better than anyone's ever done it before, you know. And I think that takes um, a special type of mindset, a special lifestyle. You know, it's it's very different, and you're constantly reaching. And I think you have oftentimes, you know, doubts about that. You know, can I do more, or how can I do more? How can I how can I apply that to every aspect of my life so that I can be better in this one area?
1: What have you learned over time about how to savor success and actually enjoy you know, doing extremely well, even if you weren't the best?
0: I've learned a lot. Uh, like you said before, It's it's been a lot of growth for me from the beginning of my career to I think I didn't learn it till somewhere towards, you know, the latter stages. But I used to be devastated when I lost races. I remember in 2008, I was it was my second Olympic Games and the first Olympics I had a silver medal and I had just rededicated myself I felt like I did everything possible you know to be at my best and went to the race and got another silver medal from uh, to the exact same person and there's nothing anybody could have told me to get me out of the space that I was in I was just I was upset I was the favorite I you know expectations and I fell short and I can now look back at that moment and I think it's probably the single most defining moment of my career. And at the time I couldn't see it, but now I understand that it prepared me for success later on going through that. Um, I learned much more than if I had won that race. You know, it's it's so much more valuable. I had to kind of look at everything I was doing, reevaluate everything, figure out like, can I? Is there any way that I can get better um, at my craft? And I looked at nutrition, weightlifting, coaching, you know, all those things. But it was that moment that brought me to it, and I think it's that that moment that allowed me to get better from it. So early on, there's no way that I could have, you know, had that perspective. But through growth, you know, I'm able to say, well, when I. Do have, you know, a race that's not up to my standards, there's still something to gain from it.
1: What do you say to yourself in those moments? If, if we were to to get inside your head and hear yourself talk, what would you say now after a silver or even a bronze, right, that you didn't say at the beginning?
0: Yeah, now, well, what I was saying to myself after this bronze in, in Tokyo was I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be able to do what I love. I'm grateful to to be back on this stage. You know, there was moments where I wasn't sure if I was going to to make it back or to make it at all. So just having gratitude, having um, you know respect for the sport and respect for my competitors that. I am not the only talented one. I am not the only one who is working and giving and sacrificing and appreciating that, appreciating that there is excellence around me, that there's beauty in that, Um, lifting others up. You know, I think to have success, you have to be very selfish. But I think at the same time, you have to look around and say, I think especially in the position that I've been in, um, how can I help some other people? How can I lift them up so that now they can be the ones to take this torch and to carry it on and do some incredible things.
1: Spoken like a giver, not a taker. (laughs) Let me ask you one other thing on on this silver medal topic before we shift gears a little bit. So you finished that Olympics. You're obviously disappointed. You said over time, though, that you learned to turn that into excitement, uh, that you did win an Olympic medal and you realized how meaningful that was. What were your goals then coming into the next Olympics?
0: Gold, Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think coming off the silver medal, that's naturally you know where you go. Um, Also, at my first Olympics, I had only I ran the two hundred only, so only one individual event. Um, It had always been my dream to do multiple events, and so going to the next games, I was excited to you know to branch out and do relays. So much shifted from two thousand four to two thousand eight, just with my mindset. You know, as a teenager you're just excited to be at the Olympics, you know, you're taking everything in and then coming back, you know, as a young woman and um, having sponsors and having obligations and also kind of navigating being a, a, I was a professional athlete and I also was at USC, you know, full time and had just graduated and yeah, just, just a lot happening during that time.
1: I remember when we first met, you you talked about the difference between competing to win versus running not to lose. And do you think it's better to do one or the other? Would you you rather be in the sort of racing to win or racing not to lose mode?
0: Um, Racing to win, you know, I think that's more enjoyable uh, of the process. You know, I think when you get in kind of the phase of racing not to lose, it's, I feel like it's, it's like you almost have lost a, a bit of yourself, you know, and the reason why you started. I mean, it has a lot to do with the, the outside world of it and, and the pureness of racing to win. There's just there's nothing like that.
1: I can I can definitely relate to that. Mm-hmm. It also seems like it affects your emotions a lot. Psychologists have found over and over again that when you're in a prevention-focused mindset where you're trying to avoid a negative outcome, that you experience completely different emotions than if you're more promotion-focused and mm-hmm. trying to approach or attain a positive outcome. So I think in the in the not-to-lose version, it seems like when you win, you're relieved. Yes. And when, you know, obviously if you flip it to I'm I'm running to win, that win is now elation, exuberance, joy, thrill. Have you experienced both of those?
0: When you were speaking and explaining that, I was like, I can attest to that. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> it's very interesting. In 2012, my experience, um, I would have to say that I was in that racing not to lose because I had lost, you know, two Olympics before. And it was like, if I find myself in that same situation, like what is going to happen? You know, it, it just seemed like it, it couldn't. And because I had been after this goal for so long and it's something that I wanted so bad and I had worked so much and fell short, you know, for eight years, (laughs) that when I had the opportunity it didn't seem like it lived up to what I had dreamt it to be, you know, and that's exactly what you're saying. Like those emotions, it wasn't the thrill, it was the relief. And I had to really, it took me time and space to understand, well, why, why is that? You know, why am I not feeling everything that I thought, why has my life not changed because this moment happened? And so it was really interesting and even a little bit hard for me.
1: Wow. So take, take me back to 2012. So you're coming off of two silver medals in a row in the 200. You're basically now showing up to say, I can't lose the gold again. And what did it feel like when you won?
0: Yeah, my mindset was completely different. Obviously, there were still all these expectations. Um, I I was the favorite. I had the two silver medals before, um, but going to the line, I felt a sense of calm and a sense of peace. I think because I I came to the realization that I've done everything I can do. Like I've done all the training. There's nothing left unturned. Like this is what it is. And if this is not meant for me, then this is not meant for me. But I crossed that line. I looked up to make sure. And there was a lot of joy, but um, I did feel relieved. Like I, I almost, I think like when I look back at the footage, I think I almost like see myself take that big, deep breath. And it's like, it's finally done. Like, I finally have this medal that, you know, has eluded me for so long.
1: Did that end up changing how you trained for 2016?
0: Um, It did. I felt like... Going to twenty into 2016, I started to challenge myself outside of what I had been doing. So um, 2004, 2008, 2012, I ran the 200 meters. In 2012, I also ran the 100. And then I ran both relays, 4x1 and 4x4. And I felt like I had a great experience. And then it was time to get outside of my comfort zone and challenge myself event-wise. And so I jumped up an event to the 400 meters and for me, the 400 and for anybody who has even ran track and like PE, anybody who has gone around the track um, at all one time and tried to run as fast as you can, you will understand and relate to me that no matter how fast or how slow you go, it's not fun. <laughs> Your body, <laughs> like it just, it's not happy to go that fast for that long. There's lactic acid. It's so for me, it, it was it was really hard to, to change events and to step up. And it wasn't something that came natural to me. It wasn't like always fun. The training wasn't fun. And so it was a challenge, but I I feel like, you know, you have to get outside of that comfort zone, you know, often to really push yourself.
1: Wait, Allison, my mind is blown right now because I was sure you're just one of those freaks of nature who enjoys the feeling of sprinting to the point of feeling like you're going to die.
0: Absolutely not. Are you saying that's not true? (laughs) Absolutely not. I I think in like all of my life, I've probably the, the furthest I've ever run maybe is like four miles and that's like maybe I'm probably dying at the end. So I am a true sprinter sprinter. So the 400 to me is like, that is definitely the cap. And it's also, I, I'm not a happy camper when I have to run it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't believe that I have run farther than you. You have. <laughs> I had no idea. I, I kind of want to challenge you to a half marathon now and then get crushed.
0: Uh, At there is, I would have no chance, like, because I wouldn't finish <laughs> my body. is. I,
1: I've never run one either. Neither would I. Oh my gosh. That would
0: be so funny.
1: <laughs> uh, no, I just, I, what I really want to see is what, what your, what your arc is like from, you know, probably you're, you're pretty excited for the first hundred or so. And then you just go downhill.
0: Yeah. I could just tell you <laughs> how, it, how it's going to go after mile, probably two. <laughs>
1: Uh, I think we're going to have to get Wes in on this and make it uh, some kind of event for charity. Alison Al- Felix runs more than four miles for the yeah. first time ever. <laughs> I love this. Um, how do you how do you stay focused? How did you keep yourself going when you don't, you, I guess you don't even get the runner's high like a marathoner would?
0: Yeah, it's it's really challenging, especially to have been doing what I've been doing for so long. I think that you do kind of go through these like ups and downs. I think it's changed. I think each year um, or each season of life, different things have kept me motivated. I think at the beginning for a long time, you know, it was that gold medal. That's what, on those days where I wasn't feeling it, it was like, my competitors are training. You know, I've, if I want this, I'm, I gotta do more. I gotta, you know, I, I have to be out here. And then, you know, I think when I switched events, that also helped. It added a new kind of element, To it, And then most recently, I think becoming a mother has been the ultimate shift. I've always been a competitive person, you know, growing up, I've come from a competitive family, they never let me win in anything. So I think that had a lot to do with everything. But becoming a mom shifted my whole motivation from why I want to win, you know, it was from my own kind of desires to I want to show my daughter, you know, what overcoming adversity is like and, you know, being a role model and all those things. So it became deeply personal, my motivation. And it's interesting. I, I feel like that also made me a better athlete, you know, that connection to something other than just, you know, wanting to win.
1: So let's talk about then Nike. Nike. I I think maybe the place to start is just, can you tell the story of what happened and how you got the news that they were dropping you?
0: I became a professional athlete. I was 17 years old when I signed my first contract. I don't think anybody ever sat me down and said, like, you shouldn't have kids until, you know, you've accomplished all your goals. But at the same time, I don't think I ever saw women celebrated in that role, you know, as an athlete and as a mother. And I think by sitting there and kind of taking that all in, that's what I saw. And so for me, I had colleagues and friends who hid pregnancies because they had to secure new contracts or they had contracts paused. They weren't getting paid because they were pregnant. Um, And I witnessed like all that hardship. And so when I decided to start a family in 2018, I was in negotiations for a a new contract. And I was terrified because I I knew that this is like the worst possible scenario to be trying to negotiate a contract and to be pregnant, you know, and to to be an older athlete. And so already I was so scared. And then um, the negotiations weren't going well. And, you know, they started off really rocky. And before I even disclosed my pregnancy, they were offering me 70% less than what I had previously been making. So that happened. Yeah. And then I did disclose my pregnancy. And then it was just, I just felt like I wasn't supported. Like I was basically, they were saying that my story was, over like you know my best years were behind me and so they didn't have language in their contracts for maternal protection and um, in that whole process you know I decided to speak out and to sh- share you know everything that I had went through um, and then that led me to part ways with the company um, and after I parted ways they did eventually go back and change their change their policy but you know obviously I was I was gone at that point
1: it's devastating and obviously so wrong. What, what did it feel like when they first said, no, we don't want to continue?
0: I guess it felt just so – I felt really hurt, you know, because you feel like you're a family. You know, that's what's really, you know, preached to you. And I guess, I guess they didn't say that they didn't want – like, they didn't just drop me. It was just that what they valued me at was so low. And to me, that was crushing because I think I had tied my value into – you know, into what they were saying. Like I really, I, I really started to believe that that was my worth and my value. I I, I had bought into like, wow, well, I, I feel worthless now.
1: It's, it's so I don't even know what to say. It's it's just shocking that you know in in the 21st century, yeah, that this was still happening. And did you did it alter your plans at all? Did you think about retiring?
0: There was a moment. I think I had such a a hard time with my birth experience and my daughter was in the NICU. And um, there were moments when we were both still in the hospital where, you know, running wasn't on the forefront of my mind, especially at that time, we were still dealing with the negotiations. And because things were so out of whack, and I was dealing with so much, I, I thought, well, maybe they're right. Like maybe I can't get back. And maybe this isn't something that I should continue to do. But I think that's the beauty of having like an amazing support system and uh, a family and, you know, coach who understands my goals, and who were able to see that that vision for me, even when I was in the midst of all of, you know, the turmoil that like, no, this, you can still do this.
1: Uh, well, I'm I'm certainly glad they, they came up with that <laughs> message early and often.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. Some of this reminds me of, of what sociologists call the motherhood penalty, which is to say working women face a lot of bias. But some of the worst bias happens when they decide to have children and then people assume they're not committed to their career, they're not going to be fully focused on work, uh, which is ridiculous because we all know that if you want to get something done, you should give it to a busy person. <laughs> and I think, you know, in, in the workplace, it's just utterly ridiculous to expect that somebody's commitment to their family is going to detract from their commitment to their job. In sports, it seems a little bit, it's still obviously wrong, but it's a little bit more understandable to wonder like, what, what effect does pregnancy have on a woman's body? Uh, is she able to come back you know, to the same level of athletic fitness?
0: I mean, like you said, it's kind of natural to go to that place because, you know, as athletes, we work with our bodies. And so of course, you know, your body is changing. And I think we haven't really seen it. Those stories haven't really been told that much. And so because that's the case, I think that there's a lot of, you know, unknowns surrounding it. And I think, you know, a lot of women wait, Well, in my case, you know, you wait to start a family because you feel like you have to. But I think when you support a woman holistically, then you don't have to force them to make that decision. I have a friend; she's a basketball player, and she had her daughter um, like in her prime, and it's been beautiful to watch her raise her daughter and to also excel. But I, beyond her, I, I can't think of too many women who have who have done that and who it's who have been celebrated. And even listening to all of her stories, it, it was such a hard, you know, such a hardship. But I think that it is possible. But I think it has to be done the right way. And we have to be supported to be able to, to do that. And I would love for us to have more examples. Because I know if I can do it at 35 years old, <laughs> it's a, a lot easier to do it much younger as well.
1: Why do you think you're a better athlete because of becoming a mother? I, I know you mentioned that you now have someone to to compete for, and you're thinking much more about being a role model. Is is that part of it? You're motivated in a different way than you were when you were just racing more for yourself.
0: I think so. I think you the perspective shifts, and I think when you can tie tie it to something else, it's it's definitely more meaningful. And let me be clear. It's it's harder. It's much harder. You know, at this point in life to do all the things that I do because I, I, it's, I don't know. I I think back and it's like, wow, there was once a time in my life where I trained and I took naps and I got nine hours of sleep and that was my life. And it was like, that's all I had to do. (laughs) That's amazing. But life looks a lot different now, but I will say (laughs) that with the time that I have, I'm just smarter. You know, I, I train smarter. I, I do things. I feel like I'm able to be much more effective. And because I can put things into perspective, I feel like I have more of myself to pour into what I'm doing. So I, I do feel like I'm a better athlete for that.
1: Love that. So when, when Nike devalued you so significantly, this is, from what I can tell, the most visible sexism that you've experienced. Had you encountered it before, though?
0: definitely not in this way. I'm sure like in small ways, you know, and in sport, you know, dealing with I feel like how my male counterparts are or marketed or some of the opportunities that they got. I think being a female in sports is hard. And not only do you have to be extraordinary at what you do, I think that there's a sense that you also need to be pretty or you need to have this appeal or this, this crossover. And so, you know, I've dealt with things like that, you know, my entire career and not feeling like, you know, on the same level as, as, some men who are doing the same things but uh I had no other experience like the one that I did you know of course with the whole Nike situation
1: so it sounds like it had been much more subtle up to this point
0: exactly for sure
1: and I, I can't help but wonder, too, about the the question of racism here, which is to say, if you had been a white woman, mm-hmm. would they have responded differently?
0: Yeah, and I've had those same questions myself. You know, I, I try to, you know, be very cautious, you know, when I, I think that just naturally, you know, I'm always kind of going there and, and, and double-checking myself. But I've definitely had to wonder that. I mean, off I, I've dealt with a lot throughout my career of just being a black woman in sports and trying to cross over and especially in Olympic sports and not getting the same opportunities as, you know, some others. And, you know, so it's been hard, but yeah, I, I have had those same questions and I can't, you know, obviously say that it it would have been different, but I, I have those questions myself and it felt very personal that after I had accomplished so much that I would be in this place. And so I think I could look to a lot of you know, different things, you know, maybe just being a woman in general, maybe being a black woman. I think that's the hard part is that you don't really know.
1: I mean, it's sort of poetic justice, right? To, to come out of now 2021. And here you are with a bronze medal and a gold medal. If I have read the stats correctly, you came back faster after becoming a mother and after being dropped by Nike.
0: Yeah, it's it's been pretty incredible. You know, there was so much doubt with everything that I had been through, you know, if I could get back and to be faster, you know, kind of at this age than when I started out, it's just kind of mind blowing. Um, And the persistence and to, to not give up, I know a lot of us have have felt that, you know, where someone has put limitations on you or has told you, you know, where you belong and to try to break free. It can it can be a hard process. But for me, there is there is no better feeling than stepping on that track and being able to do what I knew I could do a couple years ago.
1: Did did you have an I told you so moment?
0: <laughs> I think the the biggest moment. I think it was just kind of a moment that I shared with just family and kind of friends was being able to do it in the shoes that our brand created. Seish. that was kind of the moment. It was like, wow, I, I was told to know my place, and that place is like in these shoes, in these shoes that we created. So that was the only moment, it, if anything. But I think more than that, it was like. It was this overwhelming feeling of like, I'm a representation like for those women, for all those people who have felt overlooked. Like here I am. So many people connected with me and reached out to me. And and that like that was even another sense of motivation as well.
1: I wonder I'm thinking about some research that my colleague Samir Nomahama did where he found that sometimes when you're the favorite, it makes you a little bit complacent and that when you get underestimated uh, or even you get sort of turned into the under, underdog, that you have something to prove all over again. And he's found that it's especially motivating to want to prove somebody else wrong. Um, it almost seems like Nike was this, this enemy now that you had to defeat.
0: Was was that part of your drive at any point? It was my belief that I knew that I could do it. So I don't think, I, I don't want to even give them that credit. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's really interesting because I feel like for me, it's always been easier to be the underdog, you know? And I think even when you are the favorite, you create some sense of something in your own head. My, My husband and my brother tell me all the time, they're like something will happen and and I'll feel like well you know I have to prove this person wrong and they're like that doesn't even exist you literally created that and I'm like no like that's really what it is but I think it's this idea of like when you're at the top you have to have something to reach for um and so whether you fabricate it or <laughs> or however you get to um I think it is always easier to be the underdog
1: I I think so too and I guess that that makes me curious about what the lead up to 2021 was especially when it came a year after it was supposed to. I know for a lot of athletes it was a huge letdown and they found themselves sort of languishing or even burning out knowing that it was now a 5 a 5 year lag instead of 4 and they'd kind of tapered and ramped up for this critical moment and it, the rug was was swept out from under them. Um but I also know you—you like, you were working on sort of rebooting in some ways your career. W- were there any benefits of having that extra year?
0: Yeah, there were. I couldn't tell it at the time because I was when I heard that the Olympics were going to be postponed. I was devastated because obviously, as an athlete, as an Olympian, everything is timing, and so obviously being older already, I was like, oh gosh, I'm going to be another year older, like can I do this? Do I want to do this? Like I had all those questions. And so I took time and space to kind of grieve that loss. It wasn't going to look like the way that I had imagined. And then that's when it came time. Like, okay, we got to pivot. We got to adapt to this our new circumstances and how can we get better? And so now, being able to reflect, I will say having that extra year, I think I did get better. I think I got stronger. I think that it was a blessing. You know, obviously nobody wanted the the world to be in the state that it was, but I, I think we tried to make the best of a of a difficult situation.
1: Well, wow, you d- I think you definitely did that. Uh, what was going through your head as as you arrived in Tokyo? I I remember. I, I I must have I think I saw it on Twitter actually um, that the the early announcement that you weren't allowed to even bring immediate family I'm like wait you're you're doing this for your daughter and she can't even be there with you what
0: no yeah yeah that was pretty tough um I yeah I. <laughs> What I had visualized in my head was, you know, the victory lap with Cammie. And, you know, that had motivated me for so long. So, like, hearing that that wasn't going to happen, I was like, okay, that's, you know. But at that point, it's like, I've come this far. I'll have to tell her the stories. Uh,
1: so, tell me then what the what the two medal experiences felt like.
0: Yeah. So, the bronze medal came first. And, man, each round, it was like, you know, just... Just focusing on that and trying to get to the next, and you know things were coming together. I was running my fastest than I had in in years, Um, and I really just wanted to run free in the final. I think I have always held a lot of expectations and a lot of weight of others, you know, on my shoulders. I think when I compete, and I remember I had a conversation with my brother before I went out on the track, and he was just you know really reminding me that your value is not tied to whether you win this race, or if you come in dead last, like you are still the same person, you are still worthy, and just kind of um, reinforcing those thoughts in my head. And he just reminded me to have fun and to enjoy this. Like this is my last, you know, competition on the Olympic stage. And so I did winning that bronze medal. It it was so special. I was so happy, um, you know, to be able to do so with my daughter in mind, but with so many women and moms in mind as well, and um, just overcoming so much. So that was incredible. And then to get to run on the relay and get the gold medal. And that was so special. It's such a special group of women. And yeah, it was was just like, I, I couldn't have, you know, dreamt it any better.
1: I I was trying to figure out right when you won your bronze, whether that took some of the pressure off because you knew you'd medaled in your last Olympics or whether it intensified the pressure because now you're one medal away from beating Carl Lewis's record to become what the most decorated American track and field athlete
0: ever. Yeah, it's so funny because, you know, I I never like set out to break any of those records. Those records were never on my radar. And I think because I didn't focus on them, it didn't give me any extra pressure for me. I was like, that's amazing if it happens, but if it doesn't also like, I'm so fulfilled, I'm so satisfied. Um, so it was just like this extra special thing. So I honestly, I didn't even give it more thought. It was like, you know, you go into every race and you want to win and that's your mindset. And so I, I just did that. And it's like, if this comes, then that's, that's amazing.
1: Is there any chance that you go for a 12th medal?
0: (laughs) No, (laughs) there's not. But I will be cheering everyone on. And I think it's going to be really cool to be a spectator in Paris and to be able to take in the games like from a different perspective, having been on this side for so, so long.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the dynamics that are facing athletes now. I think burnout and mental health came to the fore during this Olympics in a way that I've never seen in sports. Um, You know, whether we're thinking about Naomi Osaka or Simone Biles. And one of the things that I kept thinking about was, are, are we finally reaching a point where we don't expect our elite athletes to sacrifice their physical and emotional health for excellence?
0: Yeah, it's really important what's happening right now. I think it's nothing new, but I I don't think athletes have shared this part of their life before. And so I was just so proud that these two young women have really shined a light on this area because, you know, it's really hard. It is really hard. And there are so many expectations and everybody handles things very differently differently. And there's no, you know, right way to do it. And I think we have to value our mental health and we have to have resources to be able to deal with, you know, these things. And I think, you know just the the expectations are so high and just understanding that these still are human beings and they still have, you know, issues just like the rest of everyone else in the world. And so I think just being able to get a glimpse into that was helpful. And I think it's going to do a lot for not only athletes, but just a lot of people in the world.
1: I hope so too. I was, I was mortified looking at some of the commentary on Simone Biles in particular as I've heard a lot of reasons, but one of them is as a former diver, I've mm. had the twisties and it psychologically, it feels the same as vertigo. Mm. I, I remember actually I coached a diver who had a horrible case of the twisties and it took us a good several months to mm. sort of help her relearn routines that she could do in her sleep previously. And it was almost like her body lacked the capability to execute whatever neural pathways had had been built up previously. And yeah. it was almost like teaching someone to walk after a stroke. Wow. I was like, what What in the world are these I don't even want to dignify them as armchair quarterbacks. These couch potatoes doing <laughs> judging something they don't understand. You must have gone through some of that too. What What were you thinking and feeling as that was going on?
0: I felt the same way. I mean, I think you know, for the first time, I, I was really seeing how people viewed athletes. You know, and just that this is such entertainment, and you know that that there's not like a, a person on the other side of that. You know, these these comments, and I think some people do not understand you know when when they're calling Simone Biles a quitter you know this is the the greatest gymnast we have ever seen and knowing her dedication and her work ethic and her personally it was really sad to see kind of where you know some people are with all of this and i also felt that i don't know i that just wanting to be more transparent, I think, and and that's why I tried to share some more of my feelings, you know, and just going through this process because I think that when we are, you know, then it, it does kind of bring people in a, a little bit more. But it also just showed how far we have to go.
1: It it really did. I can't I can't remember the last time I've been so enraged by mm-hmm. something that had no direct effect on me in sports. Then, like people thinking, well, you know, but we watch like football players, you know, play on a like a bad knee, and then they get
0: surgery in the offseason.
1: Like I'm like, she gets lost in midair. We have seen gymnasts paralyzed yes, or worse.
0: Yes, and I think that's the, you know, the oh, it just seems so cold. Like she could lose her life because you know I think I don't know if people didn't understand, uh, you know, if they don't understand how dangerous you know that is, or if they don't care, you know, either way, it's, it's not a good place to be.
1: (laughs) No. And so I guess one of, one of my hopes coming out of all this is that we're going to start building a healthier culture Mm -hmm. in sports and that athletes are going to be encouraged to prioritize their well being, not only their performance. What does that look like? How do we get there?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely going to take a lot of steps, but I think having these conversations and bringing them to the forefront and having, you know, really popular athletes like Simone and and Naomi to be able to bring people into this. But I think we're going to have to start at the youth level, teaching kids that you do value your mental health and this is how you value it. This is the steps that you take and just break down those systems. You know, I I think about the collegiate system and just how demanding that is and just how a lot of it is not healthy. And, you know, looking at, you know, how we do things in these organizations and and kind of just disrupting that.
1: And so is there a version of sort of taking mental health and well-being seriously that doesn't sacrifice our competitiveness?
0: I believe so. I believe that we can do both and that we can be just as great, if not better. Um, I think when you take care of yourself holistically, it makes you a better person. And in return, it makes you a better athlete. And just, you know, I can only speak to my own experience, but I feel like when I value my mental health, when I do what I need to do, it it does, it it makes me feel better and in return, be able to train better. And I think that your competitive edge, does it just go away because you decide to, you know, to take care of your mind? You know, I think it's, it's a part of seeing the picture as a whole and knowing that this is a, as a part of you and you have to, you know, give attention to it. But I think you could be just as competitive, but you can be, you know, a better athlete when you, when you are, you know, really valuing yourself as a, a whole person.
1: I, I wanted to ask you about coaching. Uh, you've had the privilege of working with some really world-class coaches And I wonder if there are any lessons you've taken away from them about how to motivate people.
0: Oh, that's a really great and interesting question. I feel like I've been really blessed to work with uh, a coach for a long time, a long period of time. We've been together for 18 years and he is a very demanding coach, Bobby Kersey. Um, He demands excellence. And, you know, you know, when you step onto his track, you know, that's what you have to give him. And he, I think he has a very old-school way of motivating you know he's he's a bit of a yeller and a screamer but what i'll say that i have learned from him is that he, he is an excellent coach because he not only cares about how my performance is on the track but he cares about me as a person and i i feel that i know that it's not just about performance with him and that makes me know that i can trust him that he has my best interests in mind and i think that's that's something that's rare. A lot of times when you're talking about performance, it's just who can get the most out of you. But you don't think about like, who is that person who in in your time of need, who is showing up and who's in your corner when it has nothing related to nothing, they have nothing to benefit from that. Um, And so I I think that's a a lesson I've learned from him.
1: Even though you're smashing his wife's records.
0: (laughs) And, And that's also a combination as well, because she's my mentor. And so it's like this whole connection. And they're just such genuine, authentic people, but also amazing at what they do, you know, amazing at coaching, amazing at getting the best out of uh, individuals.
1: I have a, another colleague, Chad Murphy, who's been studying what happens to athletes' identities when they retire mm-hmm. and finding that it's it's disorienting for a lot of them because for so long they've defined themselves by their sport and by their achievement in that world. And they're like, well, who am I now? What is my worth? To, to, to talk about the way that you described it earlier. How are you thinking about who you are moving forward?
0: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And I think it's a bit scary, you know, because... I I relate to everything that you said, you know, I've been running track for so long. It's, it's been what I've done every single day. And so to think about not having that it's, it's different. And I think, you know, change is hard. I think that there's no way around that. Like there's I'm gonna miss competing. I'm gonna miss the competition. And yes, I'll be able to do something that can help fill that void. But I don't think there's gonna be anything that's going to take the place of lining up at the Olympic Games and you know, all of that. But I think it's it's about seasons of life and that's something that you know, if, if you're an athlete, or you know, if you're you have a, a job in corporate America, you're going to have different seasons of life, and so um, it's going to be challenging. I think you know transitioning to the next phase, but also I think it's it's a time to uh, appreciate the experience and that I was able to do what I loved for so long, and I think it's just that mindset as well. So I hope that you know, kind of the next journey, the next chapter will be even greater. But I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure it's gonna be challenging.
1: I've no doubt that it's going to be greater, especially with this front row seat that I've gotten as an advisor <laughs> to Seish. It's been it's been so exciting to watch you and Wes build this, especially to to create a different kind of role model and possible self for I think especially um, girls of color growing up and not having had that historically. I also think like I grew up like almost all my role models were men.
0: Mm, mm-hmm.
1: And I think it's a travesty that I wasn't raised to look up to women and want to follow in their footsteps. And now like, I look at this, and I think they are going to be boys who say, with all due respect to Kanye, like, I want to run in <laughs> Allison <and> Felix's shoes.
0: <laughs> That's so amazing. I mean... I I completely agree. I mean, I had even as a you know young girl had a lot of male athletes that I looked up to, and I think just having the opportunity to be able to do things differently. I mean, I can't thank you enough for your role in our company and you know what you have done for us. I, I'm just so grateful, and I think even in building Sage, you know, having when I talked with Wes about you know could we do this, you know, having those thoughts, well. Why, why could we do this? You know, two kids from the heart of LA, like, you know, you, you don't see it often. And you don't have, you know, those people to say, well, this person did it, like, let's model after that. But now to be able to say for the next, you know, generation, or even thinking of my daughter, you know, and how she grows up, that we can do this, and that there shouldn't be a limit on, you know, what we think we're capable of.
1: Why not you? Yes. One of the things that I've really enjoyed, really since I guess Tokyo I don't know if this was deliberate or if it just happened but your Instagram is different now mm. I see you owning your success in a way that I never noticed before at least and I think it's such a great way to to challenge in many ways a culture that expects women to be excessively humble yeah. and to not be proud of what they've accomplished how did you arrive there
0: I think it's definitely been just a process, you know, through the years of getting older and maturing. And I think also going through everything that I went through the last couple of years, I think it really put me in that place that it's interesting. I was, I read something that Naomi Osaka was saying a bit ago about celebrating her successes. And I think often you might naturally be humble or, you know, might expect it to be. And I think it's like, no, like celebrate when there's a time to do so and bring people in on the journeys as well. Instead of just the moments of of glory, it's like, no, this is what it, I think also because people had kind of seen my journey and they kind of walked with me through this, they knew what a big victory it was. And so it's easier to share, but I've just, I've tried to challenge myself to be more transparent, you know, to the good, the bad, like give a full picture of what's going on.
1: There there is a, a pretty long line of research by Lori Rudman and her colleagues showing that women who self-promote are often liked less mm. uh, because they're seen they're seen as violating that that norm of modesty that we we expect of women but not necessarily of men. Did you have hesitations about like okay, I'm going like, to I'm going to post like most decorated US track and field athlete of all time uh, or I'm going to post a medal picture?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it definitely probably doesn't come natural, you know, to me, but then at the same time I don't know. I just really wanted to own, you know, the accomplishments and also celebrate those that, that helped me because I think it's easy, at least my sport is a great example if you feel like it's this individual sport and it's like it's just me but there's a team of people who allow me to be able to have the opportunity. So being able to celebrate the accomplishment that we all did, you know, is, is really special. And then to make that the norm, like there's a lot of different wins and it doesn't look like just going to five Olympic games. Like there are wins in everyday life. There are wins that are all over the place. And I think we should celebrate those more.
1: That, that's, I think, what's been so powerful about watching the way that you've communicated with the, with the world is I think you're, you're, you're going to make that research untrue.
0: Right? You're going <laughs> to change so. those
1: norms and shatter these unacceptable, outdated expectations that women are not allowed to be ambitious and also to celebrate when they accomplish something great.
0: Yeah, I, I would love that to be the case because I think we all should have be wildly ambitious and go after, you know, our, our greatest dreams.
1: Rethinking is hosted by me, Adam Grant, and produced by Ted with Cosmic Standard. Our team includes Colin Helms, Eliza Smith, Jacob Winnick, Michelle Quint, Sammy Case, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced and mixed by Cosmic Standard. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin, original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. I didn't ask you up front to introduce yourself, but <laughs> I'm going to have you do it now
0: okay i am allison felix i am an olympian and a sprinter and uh, just came back from my fifth olympic games
1: and you're also
0: oh i am also the most decorated uh i am the most decorated american track and field athlete
1: <laughs> i still had to ask for it we just had a whole conversation about owning your success <laughs> i know i know i know